Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. And on this episode, we're joined by Joel Johnson, the Chief Strategy Officer at Admirable Devil. That's the agency behind creative campaigns like Zonker Time with Zonker for scientific anglers. Prior to co-founding Admirable Devil, Joel was the Chief Marketing Officer for Trout Unlimited. In our interview, we discuss his early passion for fishing and conservation, how the Great Recession helped him refocus his purpose, and we take a deep dive into the state of the sport. A couple of housekeeping items, though, before we move on to the interview. If you like the podcast, please share it with a friend and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. And then shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spends. To see for yourself, visit www.nor-vice.com, or even better, visit with them at any of the fly fishing shows. Now on to our interview. Well, Joel, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you very much, Marvin. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I am too. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. I always like to ask all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Ah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, and it's a, it's a great question because almost immediately, like this vision popped in front of my mind of my earliest fishing memory. Um, it would be back in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio in the early eighties fishing with my dad and my brothers and sisters on shadow Lake, which was this little suburban Lake, um, kind of in uh, a uh, quiet rural area, you know, full of stock trout, the occasional bass. And we would picnic there and inevitably bring fishing poles, set them up on the bank, get a big, you know, tub of night crawlers or dig for, cra- for crawlers right there. Um, let them sit there and, and bob. And I remember um, <clears throat> the very first fish I caught was a rainbow trout and I was so proud of it. You know, the, the bottle went down and I pulled it out myself. My dad's behind me. I'm reeling it in. And, and like my dad takes it off the hook, whacks it. And he's like, we're going to eat this trout. <laughs> <laughs> we brought it home. I mean, I would not eat a stalker today, um, but it was incredible. I like, kind of see that full circle, you know, and have that experience and eat it. It was cool, kind of cool, and and my dad, um, my dad uh, was a big time angler. I mean, we fished so often on Lake Erie and in the uh, the rivers and the trips there. Um, and um, we, he really was my the reason why I, I I fell in love with the outdoors and and being outside and just sort of constantly trying to find ways to kind of connect. So. Yeah, thanks for that. That's actually a great memory, Marvin. Yeah, that's really neat. And so you started, you know, fishing with night crawlers. When did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> Much later in life, actually. You know, I fished, I'm, so I'm 45, and I fished most of my life as a traditional kind of spin fisherman. Um, I picked up fly fishing because it was 2007 or 2008, I think. Um, the recession hit and I got laid off from work. Um, and it was interesting because I had been going full steam throughout my life, just head down, working hard. And, um, when I got laid off, I got a severance package and, um, 
my other passion and hobby in life is to write. And so I did a lot of writing during that period and I did a lot of fishing and I was like fishing at a lake, uh, a reservoir in um, Westchester, New York, just north of Manhattan. And uh, that's where I was living at the time. And I would go up to the reservoir with my, my, my spinning gear and I'd walk around this massive reservoir. And, and, you know, you could see schools of fish. I mean, this was a beautiful, clear water, the water that basically, you know, Manhattan drinks, you know, New York City drinks. And you, you, um, you know, you'd cast in and reservoirs are deep and cold. And I would catch the occasional trout, a lot of lake trout here and there. But it was never like stellar fishing, you know. And yet then I'd go home, I'd look online, I'd see this guy pull out this, you know, chunky six, seven pound, eight, you know, eight pound brown trout. I'm like, I want to get that fish, you know. So um, I just kept looking for ways to kind of like work that reservoir. And one day, I saw some guys walking by in waders and carrying fly rods. And I'm like, where the hell are they going? Because I know they're not going to, you know, fly fish here on this lake. And they sort of disappeared into the woods and I sort of followed them. And they were going down to the outflow of the reservoir. And that's when it kind of like hit me that the reservoir, where did this water come from? Like it came in somewhere and it came and went out somewhere, right? I was like, there's a tailwater down here, you know? And so I went down and I saw them fly fishing. And I thought that's really cool. I watched them catch and I was like, I got to try that. And soon after I was taking classes um, in fly fishing, um, I convinced a bunch of my buddies to go up to Joan Wolf School uh, up in the Catskills for a couple of days and take her classes with her um, incredible staff, folks like Dusty Wismith and so forth. And I learned to fly fish there. And then when I got back to the city, and I still was on my forced sabbatical. <laughs> um, I would zip in my car, my little Prius. I'd zip up to the reservoirs and I stopped fishing the reservoirs all together. And I just fished tailwaters in between them. And the coolest thing, I tell you, the, one of the most unknown coolest things about New York City is that you can be trout fishing within an hour of being in like one of the busiest, densest places in the world. Um, if you can figure out what are the resources around you. And so you've got all these little cool little tribs and rivers and creeks in Connecticut, which is only an hour and 20 minutes from downtown New York, or you can hit the reservoirs. And there's like seven or eight major reservoirs there, all connected by tailwaters, all cold, clean water running in between all, you know, some cases stocked with trout, but in many cases you got these holdover browns and rainbows that push up from the reservoirs at certain times. Um, into the creeks, especially when there's good hatches. Um, and then there's some wild trout in there as well. So it was, and it was like, I always felt like it was a little secret. There was maybe 10, 20 guys who knew about it. And um, I spent a year fly fishing and learning how to fly fish and teaching myself success, failure, the whole nine there. And it just became something else like, this is so important to me. I, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And like, I want this to be that thing that I just do that I need, you know, to, 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 uh, um, take a break, de-stress, unwind, you know? So, so that's how I, that's how I got started. That's how I went to the dark side. <laughs> it, it, and, and, you know, what really drew you into fly fishing, right? I mean, you know, cause it sounds like you've shifted away from spinning fishing to fishing all fly fishing now. 
Yeah, I'm pretty much um, 100% fly, and it's because of the 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 challenge of it, um, the connection of it, the you know, and also the the level of engagement. You know, yeah, okay, you can. I know some guys who make their own plugs, but I love the idea of tying a fly, going out, experimenting with it, catching a fish on it. You know, I love the idea that every time I go to a stretch of river, it's going to be different. The environment's going to be different. The weather's going to be different. The fish are going to be different. The little challenges on that river are going to be different. You know, especially if you fish a, a piece of water for a long time, you watch it change, you know. And um, um, the thing that I love about the fly fishing experience, too, is there's a there's a little bit of like you get to explore, you know, depending on your, your water. You know, you, you, I remember, for here, well, here's a great example, right? So 30 years of basically standing on the damn bank, on the bank, on the dock, on the pier, on the boat. The first time I put waders on and I stepped into the river, I was like, no, it's a completely different experience. It's, it just, you feel the river pushing against your legs. And like now, of course, I take it for granted, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours on the water. But like that first experience of pushing against the water, wading upstream, you know, you get a good rip and you kind of lift your legs up and you float a little bit downstream to your next hole. You know, it's, it's a completely different experience being in the water. You know, so when you're wade fishing, being on a river, or even when you're on a boat, right, on a, on a guided trip, it's, you're floating down river and the river is constantly changing. And I just, that dynamic really appeals to me, whereas the spin dynamic just felt so much more static, so much more. Um, boring you know yeah that's that's really neat i mean i know for me it's the one of the few things that i do that kind of soaks up all that mental capacity and to your point it's different every day even if you go to the exact same place yeah absolutely absolutely and then you know because of those differences it forces you to to fish differently and then you know you you dig your heels in you get real stubborn you say i'm gonna just do it this way i'm just gonna do it this way this why isn't this way working and then, you know, because you never can stop learning fly fishing, you go and you start studying and reading and you find other ways, you know, and that is cool. That is just cool. Like you can always keep learning. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the biggest lessons is you have to take what the river gives you, which for type A people mm-hmm. like me, I, I find to be a pretty important lesson. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. I'm going to remember that. Yeah. So we, so we fast forward, you had your forced sabbatical, you were living in the city and I know now you live, uh, in the nation's capital. Um, tell us a little bit about the fisheries in your area. Yes. Um, so I live in Washington, DC. Uh, I've been living here for about eight years and I've got to know, um, the fisheries around here. Uh, it, and it's been interesting because <clears throat> obviously we have this, you know, we're at the confluence of two rivers, the Anacostia and the Potomac. And the Potomac at its headwaters is, a, you know, is a trout river. Way up in its headwaters, you're going to find brook trout. Um, and then you're going to find trout, you know, through West Virginia and into the Maryland. Um, and uh, for about a good 10, 12 miles, it's like basically a tailwater. And then it warms up and then it turns into a smallmouth bass fishery. And it's an epic smallmouth bass fishery. Um, what's really cool about being in DC is that, you know, those two rivers, the confluence is right here. And then 
you know, just a handful of miles downriver, another 40, maybe 50 miles, you know, you hit um, the bay. And so there's like a lot of opportunities in this region. So I can go and put my rod in the car, which I almost always have, and go down to Fletcher's Cove. And depending on the weather at the time of year, you know, I can small, I can catch smallmouth bass, catfish on the fly, um, panfish. And then, of course, we had this annual run of American and hickory shad um, on all our rivers. That is just a spectacularly fun time. Um, catching anadromous fish, you know, within sight of the capital. It's just really cool, you know, particularly in Fletcher's Cove. It's a, a little valley um, and it's below Great Falls, which is a spectacular national park if you've ever been there. And it's rocky and fun. And, you know, behind you is Georgetown University, but you can't really see it through the trees. It's kind of covered. And then above you, there's a, there, there's a highway. But then you're looking up and you're seeing bald eagles, you're seeing ospreys, you're seeing cormorants. You know, you're looking down, you're seeing turtles and great blue herons and egrets. It's a really green city, you know. It's just, um, you know, it's busy, just like any other place. Um, but it's rich in resources. And so, so I like to fish, you know, what's interesting, I, I was a trout guy for a very long time and then um, really started to expand into warm water fishes. And now I have a really eclectic mix, and that's because of where I live. And then we're not too far from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, um, maybe an hour and a half. And so there's trout up there, uh, brook trout through the, you know, stock trout. And there are some um, pretty half decent uh, wild trout rivers as well. Um, and uh, then if, it's interesting because D.C. is kind of like smack in the middle between Maryland, Virginia. Um, we're really close to the Pennsylvania border. So one thing I love to do when it's just kind of hot and humid and busy and DC kind of getting to me, I will just hop in the car and sneak up to the limestone spring creeks um, of Pennsylvania, which is like an hour and a half away. Like it's crazy. The amount of opportunity we have, you know, in this, in this, uh, in this area. Um, and there, you know, you're going to find spring creek trout, picky technical waters, you know, different challenge altogether, um, different kind of fishing. Um, so I feel blessed, honestly, <laughs> to live here. Um, you know, it's not like the rat race of New York. It's slower. I think of D.C. is more of a southern city. Um, it's green. We don't have high buildings, you know, and there's a lot of good fishing around me. So plus I get to go over to Chesapeake Bay for stripers and bluefish when I want to. I mean, I kind of kind of have it all here. <laughs> no, it sounds like it. Do you have a a favorite species you like to target? I mean, I know you're lucky with the diversity, but if you could only fish for, for one type of fish on the fly, what would it be? Oh, oh that's not fair. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, uh, probably smallmouth bass, probably smallmouth bass. Um, smallmouth bass can be as wily and technical as any other fish. Um, but they can also be reckless and um, stupid. <laughs> and they can also, um, they fight, you know, inch for inch, for inch pound for pound. They are incredible fish. They're strong. They're smart. They have incredible camouflage. 
in certain rivers, um, you know, near me, uh, depending on the water clarity, the sight fishing for smallmouth bass can be spectacular. You know, you're floating down. Certain guys now will have a polling platform and you're inching along, trying not to spook that fish. And you see him, you know, 20, 25 yards, 30 yards. Got to put out a bomber cast, but not disrupt, you know, just not disrupt things. Um, you get good cicada or moth hatches and you're fishing under the trees and then the water just explodes. It's just, it's a great fish. It's a great, great fish. And I think it's a little more forgiving in terms of the environment. You know, you can find obviously smallmouth in very cold waters, um, as well as in warm waters, you know? And so, uh, for this particular region, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty, plenty plentiful. And so it's, uh, it's a good fish to target. Yeah, no, I enjoy fishing for smallies in central Virginia where I grew up too. And, you know, as we've been kind of, kind of uh, talking today, you know, and I know from your background too, that you're very, very interested in conservation and stewardship. And I was curious where that interest came from and, um, how you made the decision, uh, you know, once you were interested in it to how you wanted to participate in the conversation. Yeah, that's, um, so this is actually one of those early memories, uh, for me, um, just to go back to, Cleveland, Ohio for a second in the suburbs of Cleveland. So I was living on a, in a, in a suburb called uh, Oakwood. And um, <clears throat> it was an area that just was going through a slow amount of transformation. We were in a ranch house and my neighbor on my right side was a farmer with pigs, chickens, lamb. Neighbor on the left side, farmer, pigs, chicken, lamb. And, um, but we were in sort of a 1950s ranch house and there were a few of them dotted in the area. And it was a kind of a mixed community. And, um, I remember I had, I'd go back into the, my backyard and then it was like, um, down a hill and then you could just go off into some land that just didn't seem like anybody, anybody owned it just stretched on and on. And it was like this sort of magical force that me and my brothers and sisters and my friends, we always could play in. And there was a grove of pine trees back there. Um, and you know how pine trees are. They, the needles fall on the ground and it makes it all quiet and everything gets still. And it's a different kind of forest experience. And it was a, it was a sanctuary. You know, it was a spiritual place for me. You know? And I remember one year getting my buddies and got on our bikes and dirt bikes, went out in the backyard, found the trails, and we went... We're heading up to that pine tree forest. We got there and it was gone. And uh, literally like no trees. And there was a bulldozer sitting there. And as I looked past the bulldozer, I could see, you know, the suburban sprawl. And it just, I, I felt like I lost something, you know. I felt like I lost something. And so that's always been like a kind of like a big part of who I am. Just, you know, the idea that, there are some places that are important that are special that are worth protecting. And then that, you know, when they're gone, they're gone, you know? And, uh, so I've always been deeply connected to conservation. And, um, when, uh, after my sabbatical and I started to look at like how I was going to live my life going forward, um, I'm basically a 20 year, 25 year advertising industry veteran. I was like, you know, I got all these freaking superpowers to convince people to buy sugar water and hot dogs and life insurance. I'm like, I need to be using some of this stuff for good. 
you know, and I started to actively seek out opportunities to, you know, tell stories, use communication, make advertising, to be more persuasive, to protect the things that we love, to leave the world just a little bit better place than we found it. Very neat. And, you know, uh, for our listeners that don't know, you were the chief marketing officer for a while at Trout Unlimited. And, you know, so many of us that angle uh, try to figure out how to make our day job and our our fun job mesh. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you, you made that transition. You know, you started telling uh, stories that were more meaningful to you from a conservation perspective, but how did you end up at Trout Unlimited? Yeah, so I um, left New York City, moved down to D.C. to work um, at an agency that actually did uh, work on some social issues. They worked on politics, of course, being D.C., but they worked on social issues, and they had a really good client set, um, and uh, and it was good, and the work was, was very fulfilling. Um, I got to know some people down here um, in conservation, uh, including the former chief marketing officer at TU. And uh, I always said, hey, you know, if you ever leave that place, call me. I might want your job one day. And I was just happening one randomly on, like, I think it was LinkedIn or something. And I saw that um, Trout Unlimited was advertising for a chief marketing position. I was like, oh, my God, this is right here in town. And this is exactly right. This is like, this would be a dream job. You know, I get to, to do all those things that I want to do. And, and it's connected so deeply to the sport of fishing. Um, I was like, this is, I got to go for this. So I, 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 I think I wrote a, I wrote a letter and sent in my resume. I didn't hear back for like two weeks. And I was like, man, that's ridiculous. I mean, I would think that they would want to give me a shot. I'm right here. I got the skill set. So I called and I said, did you, did you, and I called HR. I said, did you get my resume? And they were like, no, what are you talking about? I, like, oh. I sent it over and like literally, I think it was later on that afternoon, the CEO Trout Unlimited, Chris Wood, called me. <laughs> and he's like, I need to see you tomorrow. And we came in and he and I chatted. We went for a walk, actually. It was uh, one of the, that, it was actually during that walk that I knew that this would be the right place for me. We walked um, uh, across the street from Arlington down to a little island in the Potomac River that's been turned into um, the memorial, the Roosevelt memorial and we walked through the memorial together and we talked and, and he was like this is a tough job you know this is a very very um dedicated fiercely loyal passionate community with uh, a long history and as you know and um it won't be an easy thing you know if you want to do it um but it'll be rewarding and uh Pretty much, you know, very soon after I met with the rest of uh, the team and I was like, yeah, I, I want to go for this. I want to try, I want to try this out. So um, it, it, as soon as I, <laughs> I remember, uh, after I took the job, I changed my title on LinkedIn and so many people in the advertising industry that I know reached out to me and were like, man, congratulations. Like, especially uh, guys and gals who fly fish, they were like, how did you pull that off? You get to go and, you know market a, a storied, incredible brand, um, um, fight for conservation and fish. How the hell did you do that? <laughs> so it was the right time, right place, and, you know, right level of passion. Yeah, that's great. And I know during your tenure there, um, you guys really made some major changes to the way TU marketed to their members and to the general public. 
Can you tell us a little bit about some of those changes and maybe highlight yeah. one or two of them that you're most proud of? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think when I got there, one of the things and the tasks that I had was to, to sort of address the, the stark realities of what TU as an organization was going through and actually still continues to go through. So, you know, um, great organization, historical, um, predominantly its membership is made up of white males who are over the age of 55. And in fact, it's really actually over, I think, I think it's higher than that. It's like over the age of 60. And um, the reality was that, you know, their 80, 70 and 80 year old relation um, uh, members were literally dying out. And so you had an organization that wasn't growing, you know, its membership was st- sort of flat and static. And, um, you know, when you lose the membership, what you lose is the power of, of a voice for conservation, you know? And so I looked at the challenge and said, okay, we need to, we need to tell a story that's going to be exciting and more interesting to more people. Um, and then secondly, the marketing operations hadn't really changed in 20 years. And, you know, we've, we, we, we weren't tapping into social media. We weren't tapping into digital marketing. We weren't using our database very effectively to target new members based on their interests. Um, we had a very, very clunky website. Uh, and, um, we we are also challenged by the operational nature of how TU works, which is that TU is a, a it's really a an alliance of independently run um, statewide trout limited organizations across the country, and then there's a centralized you know uh, national organization that administers to those statewide organizations. But the statewide organizations have a tremendous amount of independence um, and authority in their in their locations. Um, but then, you know, you, if you look at where the money flows from, um, the money, the majority of the money that, uh, supports to you comes from grants and endowments and, and, and so forth for doing the, uh, the hard science, you know, the technical work, um, that is done and most often led by the national organization. But no, that's not to say that the states don't do their own technical work. They do, but, you know, from a size of grant and size of funding position, it's, it's, they're pretty dramatically different. In fact, um, TU as the nation's oldest cold water conservation organization also is the recipient of, you know, the lion's shares of funding from private foundations and organizations as well as public and government um, sources for cold water conservation and restoration. So what that means is, here you have all this money kind of coming in and it may work out that, you know, um, a, a project like the Clark Fork in Montana is going to receive an outsized, you know, um, amount of money and support than say, you know, Jones Creek in Tennessee. Um, you know, and it's, it's, in, it's a scenario where it's like, um, it, it causes conflicts, you know, and it's a constant balance to share and educate the membership on how and why TU National makes the choices that it makes and how it prioritizes how it spends things, you know, um, against its sort of larger national scope versus the individual scopes. And so, you know, my challenge there also at TU was to help build relationships through our storytelling, right, that would make sure that Jones Creek's story is prominently told 
as, as much and as often as the story of, you know, say the Clark fork. Right. Um, and then when I was there, you know, you asked me what things am I proud of? There were definitely two or three things. Um, uh, almost as soon as I arrived, the wild steelhead initiative took off, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, um, and West. And, um, that was, uh, funded by a number of private sources, um, major donors, including some, some brands that, uh, and many government funds to basically find ways to study, protect, conserve wild steelhead populations. And as you, <laughs> you probably know, and many of your listeners, steelhead is probably the most contentious, um, species that we fly fish and angle for in, in the States, um, because of, um, uh, systemic, uh, blows to, um, populations from damming, from energy extraction, um, from the introduction of recreational fishing, fishing, hatchery fishing, um, and so forth. And so what to you was calling for was an alliance between a lot of different forces in steelhead conservation to really work on this bigger issue, you know, create a formal environment. And uh, I remember Rob Nassanis, a good friend and one of the most talented people I've ever worked with, who's the VP of Western Conservation, came to me and he was kind of giving me a little test. He's like, all right, new guy, you know, you're supposed to be the marketing guru. How do we, how do we tell this story? What do we call it? And how do we go out and market it? And I was like, shit. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> um, but uh, I dug in, I did research, I traveled out there, I interviewed people. I brought in some really talented um, copywriters and art directors that I'd known from previous agencies. And we created um, Wild Steelheaders United, which was essentially a campaign to create the alliance um, and get in there and dig into the work. And out of that came a fresh new website, um, you know, events and activities, um, and, and then a really great editorial slate of um, foundational pieces of research and, and, and reporting that helped communicate to the wider organization why it was important to protect America's steelhead. You know, and especially, look, if you're a tailwater guy from Atlanta, you know, who's more interested in your brook trout in the, uh, uh, up in the Blue Ridge than you are in Wild Steelhead in Washington State, you know, you got to find common ground. You know, you got to tell a story in a way that brings those things together. And I was really lucky to have um, Kirk Dieter as the editor of Trout Magazine and a, uh, uh, a special human all around in terms of his ability to um, um, craft and curate great stories. He, he was able to take the initiative and, and extend it into trout, which was, you know, our number one tool for, for, for making those, for, for, for get, disseminating information. And then uh, Chris Hunt, a uh, brilliant reporter, kind of old gumshoe reporter style kind of guy, he really fell in love with the social and visual opportunities. And he um, began to really blog in earnest about it, um, push it out to social and, uh, you know, suddenly it just felt like there was momentum. Like suddenly it was like, hey, 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 he's telling that story. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm bumping into it. And it's not just in Trout Magazine, but like I'm opening it up to the Moines Register or I'm opening it up New York Times or I'm, you know, um, going onto my Instagram feed and I'm seeing this organization that I've been spending $35 a month on dues for for years 
really starting to talk back, you know, talk about what it really cares about, you know, and, and it was like this great energy, you know, it was a big shift. Um, and that, I think a lot of it started in that steelhead campaign because it was the test. It was like when we marshal, when we, you know, when we marshal our forces um, and tell a great story, it can work. So that was the first thing I was proud of. Um, the second thing was, and this was just a small functional operational change. So when I arrived, you know, I got told, here's your team, you know, and I'm looking at the team and frankly, nobody was based in DC. I was the only one, <laughs> but I had writers spread throughout the country. I had photographers, I had graphic designers, editors. And I was like, Whoa, this is basically a 25 person team and they're not organized. You know, they don't, they don't talk to each other. They're not coordinated. So I sort of said, look, we need to treat this like an in-house agency where everyone has beats and assignments and roles, but we're working on a collective mission uh, with an editorial calendar and a content calendar that's going to be consistent. And we're going to report in on that. And then we're going to measure it and see what's getting traction. We're going to measure our media impressions, uh, something that the organization had never done. We're going to measure our PR impressions and we're going to communicate this back to the board so that the board knows that we are a force to be reckoned with and that we're actually getting better at our job. And that is going to open up, you know, more support when we want to do crazier things, more money, you know, when we want to, you know, explore different media and formats. And so that operational shift, I'm extremely proud of it. It still exists today. It's now under Kirk Dieter, who's basically the VP of marketing and, and he runs it like an agency and, you know, bringing that in into the organization, I'm extremely proud of that. Um, I think it's it's had a, an enormous effect on on the way that TU has been able to effectively tell a story. So there's a lot of other things I could t- talk about. You know, we rebranded. You know, we, it was really a, just a refresh of the logo, which was feeling really dated and needed, you know, a lot of love. That was a deeply political process, which I don't want to go into. But at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, li- li- little things like that they they also do make a difference. You know, and then look, you know, what's that that old uh, adage like. If, if you're not getting, uh, if people aren't talking about you, you're not, you know, you're not doing your job. So it was like, sometimes we, we get a lot of negative critiques, you know, but that's to you, right? I mean, we, we all know how, how fly anglers can be. We're very picky people. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And, you know, we fast forward a little bit and you, you left to you, um, after, after a bit of time and you, you were a co-founder of an agency called the Admiral devil. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there, uh, working with folks in the fly fishing industry? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a really difficult, difficult choice to leave to you. Um, partly it's because I sort of was like, okay, I think I've done as much as I can for right now. And I, and I saw in organizing the internal agency at TU, I saw, okay, that longstanding dream I have of basically owning my own agency someday, maybe now is the time. And so um, some former colleagues from other agencies that I worked with, we all came together and said, we want to start a new firm and we're going to take all our principles with us. You know, all the things we care about, you know, like trying to, like I said, leaving the world a little bit, a little bit better, telling a great story. And we, we founded Admirable Devil. Um, we're based here in DC. And um, I've been very, very fortunate to, because I've made such great relationships through and throughout the fly fishing industry. Um, I've been able to actually have some fly fishing clients, uh, which is just phenomenal. Um, for example, the Orvis company, 
scientific anglers, um, and then on the conservation side, bonefish, tarp, and trust. And it's because, you know, I'd walk in a room and talk to them about their marketing problems and they knew they could trust me. They knew I cared as much about what the resources they did, but I also cared about the products and I cared about storytelling. And so I got opportunities to kind of bring my life along with me um, into my work. You know, and then we have a bunch of other clients and other sectors like um, technology and education. We actually just want a beer brand for the first time, which is super exciting. Every agency wants a good beer brand. So we're working with Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Um, interestingly enough, they have a longstanding commitment and passion to the outdoors and actually have supported TU in California um, in different ways. The founder, Ken Grossman, has done that. Um, and uh, um, the uh, the other thing is, is that they saw our work with Orbis, you know, um, and that had a big impact on how we got invited to the table to, to help tell their story. And so that's what we'll be working on in 2020. Um, so I, I, I just, I, I keep getting lucky, you know, and, but I do think it kind of goes down to that forced sabbatical all those years ago where I got to reexamine my life and, you know, reprioritize the things I care about. Um, and today, um, the best thing about owning the agency is that when I want to take the day off and go fishing, well, I don't have to call in because <laughs> I'm the boss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, um, I'm similarly situated and I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a nice perk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you, you know, and so as we kind of shift to kind of thinking about, um, the kind of the industry and kind of how it's put together, you know, I think all of us that spend a lot of time around fly fishing understand, and it's not just unique to fly fishing. I mean, it's other hunting and other outdoor activities too. You know, we see this concern that we all, that we all have about decreased participation, this desire to grow the sport. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of where we are today and kind of how we got there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, it is interesting times, isn't it? Because, um, <laughs> so here, here, here's what I, I've been having this conversation now for a few years with folks about decreased participation in the outdoors. And we're seeing some just disturbing things. And it starts with a bigger trend, which is it's a larger decrease in participation in the outdoors writ large. You know, last year, literally, and I, I just don't understand this figure. I saw it in the news. I couldn't believe it. Half of people did not even get outside to recreate. Half of the country's population. And I'm just like, that's mind-boggling. How is that possible? That half the country didn't go for a walk in the park. Half of the country didn't take their kids skiing. Half the country didn't lift a fishing pole. Half the, half the country, you know, didn't uh, drive out to, the, to a farm and let the dogs run. And I, I just, I, it's blowing my mind. I think we're in real real trouble. If we lose our connection to the outdoors, we lose our passion and our reasons for protecting the outdoors. You know, and plus it's just good for our general health. And so um I'm particularly interested in increasing participation for people of color, um, brown and black folks, indigenous folks, um, who aren't just typically they're not typically seen as being outdoor participants, which is very, very weird. And I say that it's weird because if you go back 60, 70, 80 years ago, you're going to find lots of people of color 
not concentrated in the cities, but concentrated in rural areas, farming, doing all kinds of things, you know, having a connection with the outdoors. But then you got the Great Migration in the early 1900s. You have immigration and waves of, of jobs and um, taking place in the industrial north, and it concentrates populations. And so what's happened is that folks have just, particularly people, communities of color, have been now, you know, rerouted to these urban landscapes and, and living an urban lifestyle and not getting out, you know, and um, not getting advantages to, to being out, not being seen as outdoor populations, um, not getting the same access um, to the outdoors um, and all the wonderful benefits that come with that. So I'm particularly, I'm particularly interested in seeing um, the fly fishing community grow. And I think that a big opportunity that what fly fishing can do for you is it can get you outdoors to interesting, beautiful places. It can get you into, you know, doing fun activities that stimulate both the mind and the body. And so I really would, I really think that there's an opportunity for the sport to overall refresh its population and its community, bring more people in. You know, like I said, the majority of, of fly anglers are all white men and they're dying. Where is this population going to come from, this future population? You know, you look at the larger demographic uh, trends in the United States, and it's, the United States is getting browner. It's getting more diverse. It's becoming more female. This is where we need to be drawing our future conservation conservationists from, our future anglers from. Now, that's not to say, oh, we're not going to talk to the regular old white guy, but we already know the regular old white guys out there fishing. Just go to an F3T, F3T event. You, know, you walk into that, into that, you know, theater, and you see a bunch of young white guys. They get it. They love it. They got passion for it, <laughs> you know. Um, let's get more people in there. You know, let's get um, more people of color engaged. Let's get younger people engaged. Let's get more women engaged, you know. And to do that, we have to do two things, I think. In one setting, in places like F3T and Trout Unlimited and fly fishing classes and so forth, we have to make room, you know. We have to make the room and understand that everyone was a beginner at some point and make room at the table for them. So that's like, you know, basically communicating, right? You know, making sure you're communicating in an inclusive way, you know, um, and there's a lot of different ways to do that, a lot of different tips. And the interesting thing is, is that the fly fishing industry doesn't have to make this stuff up because there's other outdoor rec recreational industries that have been working on this far longer with far more success that they could turn to as an example, including climbing, which one could argue is very niche. Um, golf, um, tremendous amount of inclusivity in the last 30 years. Again, an outdoor recreation activity. Um, biking, cycling, running. You know, there are many, many other sports that are doing it actively, but doing it well. And you can, they're, they're on a, they've already seen 10 year, 20 year upticks in participation as well as in um, more inclusive memberships. So that's one thing, making room at the table. The other thing we need to do is, is, and this is more internally within those communities of color, is just be more supportive of them. So there are plenty of, of communities of color that fish. I mean, frankly, when you look at the TU membership and you kind of break it down by the numbers and you look in a place like California, you're going to see a lot more people of color in TU. Asian, Hispanics. Why? Because that's the makeup of California. You know what I mean? So, you know, don't be surprised if you go to, say, New Mexico to fish, you know, the San Juan, 
and you're fishing next to a Mexican. Not only was it his land, you know, or her land indigenously, you know, 300 years ago, but they live there now. They've never not lived there. So, you know, if you walk down to the river and there's a Mexican person fishing there, you know, whether they're fly fishing or spin fishing, you know, you can't come at it with the attitude of, well, do we belong here? You know? And um, so, you know, there's community, communities of color, Asian communities along the Pacific Northwest, for example, that fishing is a huge part of their lifestyle. You know, they brought it with them when they immigrated and they continue to do it there locally. Um, and then, you, of course, you have indigenous communities whose waters and lands have been, you know, appropriated. And you'll find a lot of indigenous communities of color are trying to, to now reestablish their connections with, the, with, with waters and, and lands that, they, um, that their ancestors used. Um, and fishing is a big part of that. You know, sometimes we always sort of think of it as fishing as subsistence but it's, or part of ritual, but it's bigger than that. It's also recreational and cultural. And so, um, you know, when we need to support a community's um, beliefs about how they want to engage with that water, you know, that's, that means basically sort of say taking off your hat, which is like, well, I just want to fly fish that river, you know, and if you undam it, you know, it's going to go up a few degrees and I'm just not going to support trout anymore. Um, so I'm against it versus the, uh, an indigenous population saying, Hey, 500 years ago, my people fished this river. I've lived on this river my whole life. Previous generations have lived on this river. We like to see it restored, you know, conserved, protected and restored. And does that mean we lose a trout population? Yes, we may lose that trout population, but at the same time, what do we gain? We may gain something greater, a deeper connection, you know, to that water and a restoration, you know, and look, look at the positive stories out there that are examples of when you do it right, everybody benefits. And I think a great example of that is Pyramid Lake in Nevada, which is, you know, as you know, you may well know most of it is on a reservation and protected. Um, and uh, you need to get um, uh, permission from the tribal community there to fish it. Well, they've been working in hand in hand with conservationists, scientists, and biologists, not only that are working uh, directly for the, um, the native population there, but also with the state and federal resources to restore the Lahontan cutthroat. And man, that is an incredible fish. And it's not just about Pyramid Lake, it's about those trips where the fish spawn. And it's a great, great um, story because you created a powerful, amazing fishery that is rooted in the culture of uh, its original cultures. Um, and at the same time, provides a wonderful recreational opportunity. It's on so many flying loose bucket lists now. Thanks also due in part to social media and digital and spreading the words, the word about the fishery, and then also seeing black and brown faces, you know, on Instagram, in social media, caring for these animals, you know, fishing for these animals. Um, and it's just a, it's a, it's the kind of thing that we need more of across the country, I think. Yeah, very neat. And I mean, can you speak a little bit to the uniqueness of the challenge in fly fishing? I mean, is there any, anything idiosyncratic to fly fishing or is it just a function that people haven't focused on increasing participation, say as far back as maybe golfers or climbers or some of these other groups that you mentioned? Uh, yeah, it is. An, it is. An, I think that's, you, you bring up a good point, Marvin. And I like, you know, so 
when I, back when I was at TU, I used to uh, set up a set of rules about how we were going to promote Travel Unlimited. And I had one very, very clear rule. I didn't want to see any more that river shot where you see the lone angler way out there by himself with his back to us, casting to some distant fish. Because you knew that was basically an old white guy, you know, who's on his favorite stretch of the river, would be mad if you walked up to that river to fish it. <laughs> um, and all he wanted to do is go and fish, but you knew that it may be that he didn't want to see anybody else out there, you know. That lone ranger, lone angler, you know, idea of angling is it's kind of dead and it's kind of dying out. And it's because we don't fish that way anymore. You know, we get a group of buddies, guys and gals, we plan a trip. We're going to bring beer. We're going to bring our music. You know, we're going to bring our loud voices. We're going to bring our dog. It's, 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 it's transitioned from being a solo sport to really being a group sport. And um, it's more inclusive in that nature. And so, um, yeah, do we spook more fish on the river? Yeah. And is that going to piss off, you know, old Joe? Yeah, it's going to piss him off. But, but like, if we're trying to, you know, bring along more anglers than we're, and creating a sense of inclusivity, then, then those are the, the types of images that we now need to put out there. Those are the kind of shots that we now need to include in Trout Magazine, you know. Um, and what's endemic to fly fishing is looking for the quiet repose, you know, getting away from it all, uh, escape. Well, you know, right now you've got people fly fishing for carp in downtown Denver, you know, um, you can go into Brooklyn and go to prospect park and fish for bass in that, in that lake. And, and there's going to be 30 different languages spoken around you and you're going to smell curry and you're going to smell hot dogs and you're going to have dogs barking at you, you know, or you can go fish your favorite trout stream and you're going to see, you know, maybe a woman angler on that river or maybe a person of color fishing too. And that's, it's just the world is changing, you know, and, and fishing opportunities are also changing and um, none of them are right. None of them are wrong. There's just more of it. So, you know, part of the, the scenario is, is that with fly fishing changing, we need to respond and respect those changes and reflect them. Otherwise we're going to see diminishing returns. We're going to see, Fewer and fewer people walk into our fly shop feeling comfortable enough to ask a question. We're going to see fewer and fewer people, you know, buying that $750 fly rod because, you know, they're just comfortable in a $200 fly rod. So, the, you know, the industry writ large has got to change in order, you know, along with the times in order to sustain itself. And then the conservation industry has to change in order to bring on new communities and new members. Otherwise, you know, I've seen the numbers. I've had an intimate look at, you know, the numbers. They don't look good, you know, and, and, and we will lose a really wonderful, um, actually, I shouldn't say we'll lose it. It's just going to change. It's just going to transform. But, you know, we will, there will be a lot less people participating if we don't, if we don't get it right. Um, and so, so I think that's, that's kind of the funky fun thing about fishing right now um, is that just like our country, it's become incredibly democratic, you know, and that's what makes it so interesting. 
Yeah, interesting. And as you as you um, design marketing programs, and you know, at the risk of grossly overgeneralizing everything, you know, can you talk a little bit about how these different demographic groups in the sport interact with the sport, so so listeners can get an idea of, you know, the older white angler, the younger angler, the angler of color, if there are any kind of um, yeah. systematic differences in the way they like to interact with the sport. Absolutely. So. Here's, here's, here's uh, the template that I use or the metaphor that I use when I'm trying to talk about this particular subject to fly anglers. I'm like, what's your favorite online fly fishing magazine? And, you know, someone might say Southern Culture on the Fly, and, you know, you get a bunch of other ones out there. But, look, there must be 30 of them, and they're all different. And some are about regional, you know, um, fishing. Some are about particular communities of fishing. Some are about particular species of fish. And I talk about marketing in the same way, you know, in the sense that, okay, um, you're just going to have to get a lot more diverse in how you tell your story, not only in the format and the medium, but also in those stories as well. So, you know, when I'm pitching um, fly fishing brands on what they can do um, and conservationists on how they can um, be more inclusive, I, you know, I start with that. I'm like, you know, um, start with the community. A uh, great example is bonefish and tarpon. You know, the, the difference of the different communities that depend on those fish are as varied as the rainbow, you know, from sport anglers, recreational anglers, commercial anglers, um, conservationists, traveling and visiting and tourist anglers, local anglers, indigenous anglers, guides, the guiding community, the, the, uh, the owners of the outfitters. You know, it is a whole diverse community of people that support, you know, or connect to these one or two fish. And so I say, you got to do the same thing with your storytelling, you know, let's be on Facebook, let's be on Instagram, you know, let's find a way to, 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 to write articles and get editorial out there to tell your story and communicate it in your own way. And then when we feature people, let's not just talk about, you know, the kick-ass pioneering scientist who's out there or the lone wolf angler who's exploring new places, you know, um, but let's talk about the community that's already there and how they've connected to that and to that species of fish for a long time um, and what they know about it, you know. And let's talk to the guy who's got that everyday on the water 365 type of intelligence about that, about that species and bring these folks together, you know, so that they can um, talk about the benefits of having a relationship with that fish, whether it's recreational, conservation or otherwise. Um, and, uh, what I typically suggest that folks do is, you know, um, start on the ground, you know, you, you know, and, and literally just do interviews, just talk to people, you know, go in and interview people. Don't try to come up with the answer on your own in the room with a whiteboard. You know, it starts with long conversations, you know, and they can happen at the bar. They can happen on the bank, you know, they can happen in the fly shop. You know, wherever they need to happen, it's those, it's those conversations that are going to be the key to coming up with a really great strategy that should then inform your creative campaign, wherever that campaign is going to be. You know, um, the, uh, the little cool insights and tidbits and backstories, that's going to form the, the raw fodder and material that's going to make for a great story that's going to persuade somebody to listen and care about a specific fishery or a specific kind of fishing, 
you know, one of the things I love, for example, you know, about education in fly fishing right now is that it's coming from so many different places. And so here's an example on, on that front. You've got Project Healing Waters, you know, casting for recovery, um, and other numerous organizations beyond Trout Unlimited that are creating fishing opportunities. And they're coming at it from a completely different point of view, obviously, but they are still educating new anglers every day for different reasons, because there's a lot of different ways to come into the sport, you know, still gives you that same core, you know, learning how to fly fish, but how you apply it or why you apply it can be just as varied. So that's another reason why I think, um, you know, right now, you know, there's no one thing to do, but we can't just do one thing. We have to do many different things in order to grow the participation in the sport. You know, we can't lock it down. Um, and, you know, I've heard feedback from people in the industry like, oh, I make all my money from that old white guy. You know, I, I can't afford to spend time with, you know, all these young guys and, and women and, you know, and going to the city and carp fish and, or, you know, um, uh, and I'm like, well, you know, then you're just going to have to look at the long-term trend line where your numbers are and ask yourself, is that sustainable? You know, and look, maybe your mainline business can't do that, but there are ways to support others who are doing it where their mainline business is about a little more niche. And obviously, you know, when we talk about the trades and the fly fishing shows, we're seeing more people of color, more women as entrepreneurs and business leaders, creating fishing brands, creating new fishing products that are, that are out there. And, you know, I think we um, have a responsibility to, to be supportive of that, you know, to make sure that there's a big, wide, inclusive community, because um, I think that's the future of our sport. Got it. And how do you see the, the kind of the traditional civic club model fitting into the, to the transformation of fly fishing in the future? Do you think there's going to be a place for it or do you think it's going to kind of change with the way people want to interact with the sport? So if I have a, a regret about leaving to you, it, um, is that I really wanted to work on that issue of the club model. Um, when a 55 year old guy tells you he doesn't want to go to a TU meeting because he feels like everyone there is about to die. <laughs> you, you know, you got a problem, <laughs> you know, or a 65 year old guy. I, I've, heard that from, I've heard that from a 65 year old guy, you know? And um, look, there, what's interesting is that the organization, um, the club model worked for time in a, and it was right for a certain time. It's no longer right. It's just that simple. The club model is no longer right. And um, we, we live our lives very differently. You know, we don't participate in social clubs, you know, the way we used to in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, which really started changing in the 80s, you know, after, after um, the big recession. The um, reality is, is... Um, Going into a literally, okay, here's an example. The TU chapter nearest me meets in the senior citizen center across the street, you know, and it's like, that's probably not where I want to spend my, my evenings. Now there's 
dozens of interesting, good examples of chapters that are like, we're going to meet at the brew pub, you know, um, and they're shifting it because they know it should be a social experience and not feel like, you know, you join Rory. Um, and, uh, there are a lot of really good clubs out there. I think that the challenge that TU has is it needs to lighten up a little bit and loosen up all those structures. You know, it's just got too many layers of structure because there are great examples of clubs within TU that have actually solved their problems about being able to actively grow by shifting their club models to being more about um, experiences instead of meetings. You know, and I say like that, what I mean is picnics, barbecues, fishing trips, excursions, fly time nights, um, movie nights, you know, where the club work is really 10% and 90% of it is about what it's supposed to be about, which is the social engagement, you know, and having, you know, and letting go of the fear that just because they have social engagement, they're not going to get any work done. And then, you know, the other reality, of course, if you've ever been a TU meeting is there's always certain TU types that just, you know, they take up all the air in the room and they want to just be president for life. You know, well, when you have this kind of structures, that's what's inevitable. Someone's always going to want to be president for life. And so part of it is letting go of some of the hierarchy. Um, and again, there are, the, the, the interesting thing is, is that like the fly fishing industry, the club model, there are plenty of examples out there of other kinds of organizations that have shifted away and found alternatives that are doing just fine. Because, you know, part of it's looking beyond what you're currently doing for ideas, and bringing in, um, you know, outside perspectives in order to be able to see them uh, and see what, you know, see what the opportunities are. Um, what I love is, um, is that, you know, you have to also appreciate that a lot of it, a lot of it's tied to power. A lot of it's tied to money, um, but a good deal of it is also tied to tradition. And traditions um, should be respected. But you know, every tradition started somewhere, and you can start new traditions. And so, I think what I would always ask is, is how do you start a new traditions? You know, and let those traditions become more important over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, kind of a follow up on that you know, curious about your thoughts on kind of the balance in the industry um, between diversifying and growing the sport because it's the right thing to do uh, versus kind of a more cynical look of, you know, hey, we need to sell more stuff and we feel like we've saturated, I don't know, we'll just be colloquial and say the old white guy market. So we're going to go over here and just Mm kind of curious. It's really kind of a sincerity question, kind of um, Mm -hmm. curious, kind of like where you see that in in the industry and you know, who are some folks that you think are getting that right? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Um, I think what you brought up is a really good point. There's a difference between growing participation and growing members in the sport, growing participation of TU members, growing more conservationists, growing more anglers, then making it more inclusive. Those are not necessarily the same goals. And um, um, I tend to prefer and really care more about the latter than the former. Um, I'm of the mind that if we can take a angler and talk about what makes a better angler, then I think we will, we, we, that could be a pathway 
to not only growing participation, but also making it more inclusive. So what do I mean by that? I mean that sharing the water means being a mentor, being a teacher, um, not shutting down when uh, women and people of color come onto the water, but opening up and engaging, you know, and hey, maybe they don't, maybe they'll say, no, they're not interested in engaging. That's up to them. But starting by engaging is, is, is starting somewhere. Um, and then, you know, being a better angler overall means, you know, knowing more about that water, right? You know, what does it take to protect it? What does it take to uh, keep the resource intact in order to enjoy the sport? And then sharing that knowledge, that's being a better angler, right? And I think that leads to um, having more people who love and care about that water, creating more protectors of that resource. I think it, le- I think it leads to making it also more inclusive. Um, there are some really great brands that are and organizations that are doing this. Um, Project Healing Waters is, if you ever go to one of their events, it's incredibly diverse. Um, and this is by the nature of where they draw from in terms of their community, which is the armed forces community, uh, casting for recovery, similar, you know, drawing from, um, uh, the cancer community. Um, and then you look at, um, brands like rep your water, which, you know, has, has two brilliant, um, uh, people running that or uh, running that brand. Um, and you know, business people, artists, anglers, you know, having an outsized effect on conservation by um, giving back, you know, every year, you know, what matters most, cash money to um, uh, uh, conservation organizations, you know, by taking a percentage of the proceeds from their products. You know, with big companies, it's like, oh, you know, we got some leftover t-shirts. How about we'll donate that? And if someone buys it, we'll give you a percentage of the money. Well, you know, that's just, that's just bullshit. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just bullshit. And, um, you know, the difference is, is where you commit a percentage of your bottom line to keeping the resource intact. Well, now why is that important to making the sport more inclusive? Why, what's the connection between conservation and, and, and inclusivity? Well, let's look at the, the larger trend of what young people want out of their experiences. Um, millennials and Gen Xers, but particularly millennials, they want brands that, and care about brands and they shop brands that care about, um, have good values and care about the environment. They actively will in, inquire, what does that brand do for the river, for the water, for the environment? And they won't shop the brands that, that just are bullshitting or that are just showing up or just that are just there because they're cool. You know, they shop the ones that, that, are, that have shown a commitment, you know, and the research bears this out. Um, so, you know, part of it is saying, we know if we can bring more young people in, we're going to increase inclusivity as well because we know the population of the country is trending towards being more inclusive. So, you know, part of it is looking at it and saying, you know, just again, where am I going to find my consumer? Where am I going to find my member? Where am I going to find my protector? Where am I going to find my future audience? You know, if you, you start to be a better angler, you're going to naturally start asking those questions. And I think the role for folks like me, you, I think the, the leaders of our industry, and I can spout off 50, 60 names, 
They're going to be those top guides and outfitters. They're going to be those those top brand managers and those those guys who own those companies that we see in Edison and uh, out at the shows, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, who run the film festivals. You know, we can put a list of you know 150 influencers in this sport, right? Those folks, us, we need to be mentors. And we need to make mentorship a part of our sport. You know, we didn't all learn it on our own. And if we make mentorship part of our sport now, a founding principle of what it means to be a flyingler, what it means to be a better flyingler, we can have a big impact on, you know, not only growing participation in the sport, but also making it more inclusive. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think that mentorship is really kind of the glue that kind of stitches the analog and the digital technologies together, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. And and before I let you go, um, why don't you let us know, uh, you talked about Sierra Nevada, but what else have you got in store? Cause I know like, for example, you worked on the slickest knot campaign for scientific anglers. Um, what are you and your, your buddies at Admiral, uh, devil going to be doing in 2020? You want to share with our listeners? Um, sure. So, uh, we're going to, so one of the things that we'll probably do and that we've, we've been doing for a couple of years now is um, we've been connecting with the Outdoor Industry Association. So, and this is not a knock against, you know, AFTA or any of the, um, you know, sport and recreational fishing organizations, but we've had a desire to sort of see what, you know, the biggest companies and the biggest brands are doing in getting more people out, outside and connecting with the resource and protecting it. And so um, we'll probably be this summer heading to Outdoor Retailer uh, in Denver. Um, they have a new uh, program called Thrive Outside, which is dedicated to getting um, young people um, and diverse communities of color uh, in the outdoors. And we'll be supporting that in some way, I'm sure. Um, who knows, may turn into a project, but for right now, it'll definitely just be monetary support. Like we, we, we want to see those kind of organizations succeed. So, um, and then we'll probably wind up be doing, you know, wind up doing some pro bono work, um, uh, for, uh, the right conservation organization this year. Um, you know, as those opportunities come up, we look and see if we can, you know, make the time to do it and do our, try to do our best. Um, I think, uh, you know, individually, um, just for myself, what I have been participating in is, um, trying to create and convene small gatherings of people to have conversations around inclusivity in the sport of fishing and particularly fly fishing. Um, and uh, right now it's just, it's very all informal and kind of more on the conversation level and um, building up networks of people, um, you know, which is an important part of building, you know, creating the foundation for any movement. Um, and so that's kind of the, the day-to-day work that, I, that I've been up to and we'll keep doing. And, and then in general, like, you know, I, I know people at many of the outdoor fly fishing companies, um, a lot of them are really good friends. And I, I love, um, what everybody's doing. Um, you know, what's the, you know, there's some companies that stand out to me, like, um, sightline provisions and the work that Edgar Diaz is doing, um, Johnny LeCoque's fish pond. Of course, um, what that company continues to do, the Orvis company and, and others. Um, I'll always be out there 
you know, meeting with these folks, talking with these folks saying, Hey, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? I, I look at the agency. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but honestly, I look at the agency as a means to an end to stay a part of the fly fishing industry. It's what I care the most about the people in it. Um, you know, uh, both all the old timers who took the time to teach me, um, to, to grow my passion for it, educate me all the way to the young kids that I work with now, like the fly fishing industry to me, it's just that place I, I, I hope to, to be a part of, you know, going forward and just have lots of different roles. So very neat. And why don't you let folks know if they want to follow your fishing adventures or the adventures of admirable, De- admirable, gosh, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with that. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. I, I, I use it myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, just let, fo- yeah. let folks know where they can find you on the internet so they can follow you or follow admirable devil, um, and see what you guys are up to. Most of the time it's like, if you want to like a snapshot of what we're up to, um, it's on Instagram at admirabledevil.com or my own Instagram, which is, can actually be found at two different places at deadbait or which is D-A-D-B-A-I-T, which will just push you over to at Joel R. Johnson. Um, so Instagram is kind of where I am most of the time. And then, um, and you know, that's where you'll know, oh, he was on, he was fishing on the green or (laughs) he was up on the Farmington or whatever. Like, you know, that's, that's how to kind of how to find me. Um, and then anybody, you know, if anything that I shared today is useful to anybody or anybody wants to follow up or have a conversation with me, I'm a click or a phone call away. So please don't hesitate to reach out. And I just want to say thank you, uh, Marvin, for um, having the Articulate Fly podcast and, you know, creating a space where we can, you know, um, talk about these kinds of things and, and let them be recorded so that other people can connect to them too. It's, it's pretty cool. I think it's a nice part of the total mix, man. Um, I want to hear about fishing stories. I want to hear about flies, but, you know, having these kind of conversations are just as much fun too. No, absolutely. And I've enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you uh, carving some time out on a Friday afternoon to chat with me. Yeah, man. Uh, so next up, we need to go fishing, right? Let's, let's, let's figure that out. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, can I put out one more plug? That's okay. You bet. Um, so I put, I put this plug out everywhere because I do think it's part of um, what makes it special to, to live in D.C. and be a part of the Potomac fishery. Um, like I said earlier, every year we get a, a, um, an anadromous uh, shad run um, that comes out of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and into our rivers, the Chesapeake, the James, uh, the Rappahannock, and for me, the Potomac River. And it's thousands and thousands of, um, of fish that look like little tarpons, and they jump like little tarpons. <laughs> um, and we have hickory and American shad. The run happens between April uh, and it won't go through to the middle of May. And if it gets hot and wet, then it might end in, it might end in early June. I'm always here. And if anybody ever wants to get in a boat and go fish that run with me, look me up, give me a call. Marvin, same that goes out to you. Um, I love promoting the Shad run. Um, I think it's a special, special thing. When you think about like, waves and great migrations of animal species. We, we, we think about hibernating bears. We think about salmon in Bristol Bay, but the East coast has got its own little migration of millions of fish that, you know, goes off and unsung and that's the shad run. And I like the shad run because it was part of the founding of this country. 
you know, Native Americans and indigenous populations were relied on the Shadman for years. The colonies, the original 13 colonies, uh, relied on the Shad Run. George Washington was a famous Shad angler. <laughs> um, and it's just part of one of the cool things on the East Coast that we have that often underlooked. So come fish it with me. Um, give me a call. That's awesome. Well, thanks again, Joel. I really appreciate you making the time today. Okay. Take care. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's been great. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, a shout-out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Norvice. Remember, it's the only vice that truly spends. Check them out at www.nor-vice.com. And again, thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a review in the podcast of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.